0: chapter fifteen of lift luck on southern roads by tickner edwards this librivox recording is in the public domain divided ways the bright cold weather seemed now a settled permanent thing standing with my host next morning at the gate of the lone cottage on the downs the same impulse stopped us both on the brink of our leave-taking Together we looked out over the plain where the sun was licking up the last of the dewdrops and melting the last violet mists from the hollows, each struck dumb at the sheer beauty of the scene. He was the first to break what must have been a longer silence than either of us knew. He struck a match rather pessimistically. I hate farewells, he said. There have been too many in my life, so let us have none of them now. And au revoir is nothing but a mockery. We shall never meet again, you know. You say, and no doubt with perfect sincerity, that you will come back in the summer, but you will not. With busy men, life is too short to admit of any wilful duplication of experiences you can afford neither to hark back nor to swerve from the course fate has set for you from birth to death the path of each worker in the world must follow a tangent the straight line that is the nearest way between two points and two straight lines can intersect only once though they stretch from infinity to infinity No we shall never meet again he gave me the friendliest of glances and turning went slowly back to his solitary den for my part i set off down the road in much the same frame of mind nor looked back until i was some half mile away thence i could see the little house against its dark backing of pine wood and the road beyond until it looped over the distant hill he had said the truth there was little likelihood of my returning this way and he i knew would never leave the spot for more than an hour or so our strangely variant lives had crossed once they would never cross again i pondered his story there by the lane side and the more i thought of it the more doubtful i became it was a piece of magnificent steadfastness admirable in itself and likely to send him to his death a saint but apart from its glamour i could only think of it as one of the worst forms of worldliness he was doing what he had no right to do giving up his whole life to an idea that however fine its fluorescence was rooted in nothing deeper than self a man strong in mind body estate knowledge of human affairs there he was moping uselessly in one little blind corner of the earth suffering to rust and run to waste qualities that might have helped thousands all was sacrificed to an object that even if triumphantly attained, could be viewed only as a species of failure. For what will it profit a man if he gain the one woman, who is the world to him, and lose all else? No doubt, standing there moralising to the rooks and doors, I was myself squandering that most precious and most transient of earthly possessions, opportunity. I might have gone back to him and stalwartly spoken my mind. For all I knew, his one chance of awakening lay in the din that I alone was like to bring about his ears. Yet the man had been chastened, cruelly, unjustifiably, as it might well seem. In the depths of his misery, he had elected to choose his own redeemer. False or true, i was in no sort of misgiving that it would purge him into a sanctity and pureness of life that in itself might deserve eternal profit but if we once begin to justify means by ends we admit all sorts of new unknown factors into the equation of life rendering a solution already complicated well-nigh impossible i set down these thoughts not because of any profoundness or novelty they may possess but because they are thoughts that actually occur to me at the moment that i did not go back but went forward on my own business was due curiously enough to the act of the very man in whose concern they were exercised coming to a shoulder in the road whence it ran steadily down over steps of hills into the blue distance, I turned again for a last look at my night quarters. I noticed at once a dark object by the lane side in front of the house. Then I saw two men come out to the gate, one of whom approached the object, which I now guessed to be some sort of tricycle, and came riding towards me, the other man stopped by the gate, shading his eyes as the tricycle drew nearer. I made out its rider to be a postman. He pulled up as he reached my side. He was a lean, wiry old man with a face all but hidden in a mass of white hair and whisker. "Are ye for pittin?" he asked because if ye're goin there by Mr blank yonder thought as may be ye'd like to ride i looked at the machine and understood the joke i judged it to be between 30 and 40 years old it was long and narrow it had a single large spider wheel on one side and two very small wheels on the other it was a double affair there was a broad cushioned seat on which two riders could sit back to back propelling the machine by stamping alternately on levers which rose and fell underneath it looked enormously heavy somewhere between 2 and 300 weight as near as i could tell do you manage this by yourself i asked doubtfully the old man chirped like a wren i and had done these 5 and 20 year tis wonderful fast considerin when ye lays into it ordinary and with two well i'll just show ye pitton was a good four miles off and we did it just under the hour i'm inclined to rank that hour's work as among the hardest in my life the old postman bent over his pedals his elbows high in air and seemed thereby to get a purchase denied to the back rider for myself having but one handle to hold by and the seat possessing a dangerous slope to the rear i was hard put to it to keep on the machine at all leaving out of account that the pedals were as elusive and slippery as eels on the whole i was not sorry when we came into pitton and were obliged to walk the old postman peddling his letters from door to door and i pushing the tricycle we were to part company at the crossroads at the top of the hill the old man had preserved a midwinter coolness throughout the whole journey but for me it had become a hot and dusty summer's day i looked always in quest of an sign but nothing of the kind was visible how i asked do the people manage here if they happen to be thirsty the old man pointed to a very innocent-looking cottage ye may try said he a an off license and ye'll get never a drop i knocked at the door hard heart in the guise of a stout comely old lady open to my summons and was affably adamantine i tried all inducements but in vain you can't have it in your bare hands said she rather obviously where be your jug na na i dursn't lend you northen tis too dangerous whereupon she closed the door in my face i was coming back to the postman disconsolately when a little boy turned the corner carrying a milk can milk was a poor substitute truly in wiltshire the very home of good ale but the old tricycle had served me a sorry turn i held up a bargaining sixpence in the little boy's face to my surprise however his round eyes filled with disappointment. 'Tis empty,' he wailed, 'and to farm be a mile away.' The old postman chuckled. 'Tis no good,' said he. 'Ye must buy dry till ye gets to Winterslow.' He had yet to learn the resources of the needy. 'Here's the sixpence,' said I to the desperate youngster and now let me have the can for five minutes postman shall it be ale or beer once clear of pitton i found that i had seen the last of the wiltshire downs the country swiftly resumed its old luxuriant character and autumn blazed up again on every side once more the rustle of dry leaves underfoot mocked the wind in the thicket the whole way to winterslow was submerged in leaves and the sunny air full of their glancing colours between the villages i met not a soul and saw no living thing but birds and rabbits it was only two or three miles but i spent a good two hours in covering the distance i found that by walking on the soft turf under the hedgerows i could get along quite silently without bestowing any care on the matter and so came upon many a familiar but perennially interesting thing i remember this lane chiefly for its abundance of scarlet berries and the amazing strife of the birds around me as i went one would have thought that where there was such great plenty of food for all comers each would take his fill in peace but this was not so the lane was like a battlefield i moved in a continual hubbub of aggression creeping along under the shady side of the hedge i was in a constant whirl of fluttering wings and vociferous music blackbirds charged clattering out on every side wild with excitement song thrushes darted hither and thither a cloud of smaller birds finches for the most part swept on before me rending the air with their various notes of combat or alarm and above it and through it all the harsh grating battle cry of the missile thrush pealed out he indeed was the prime cause of all the disturbance the missile thrush is the bully of the hedgerows being the largest and strongest and most pugnacious of the company he naturally does not hold with the ancient principle of live and let live he is free to take now all he wants from the laden hedges and none can prevent him but that is not enough for the greedy missile his design and that of his fellows is to take forcible possession of the common larder of the countryside and to hold it against all weaker birds this selfish policy succeeds while the weather remains warm and other sources of food are available but directly the cold bright days of autumn set in other birds must crowd to the buried hedgerows or run the risk of starvation through sheer weight of numbers and by dint of repeated quick raids from all directions at once most of them contrive to snatch a meal from the bush under the very eyes of its raging custodian but it is hard and hot and exciting work while it lasts and for none more than the missile thrush himself almost his whole day at this time of year is spent in scolding at intruders or making headlong rushes after retreating foes as the alarm spread at my approach first the weaker combatants made off and then the missile thrushers themselves but their rasping notes did not cease even then Each came storming out of the thicket on the farther side, just ahead of me, and off to the shelter of the nearest tree, until I had passed on. Or sometimes they winged straight up into the blue, and hovered there, lark-high, until they were free to get back to their misbeholden treasures. He that goes about the countryside on tiptoe, prying into holes and crannies, undoubtedly sees more of wildlife than one who is content with an ordinary stroll through the woods and lanes trusting to the chance revelation of the moment but to me at least the great charm of nature has always been not her most secret most hidden aspects but her unceasing repetition of old known sights and sounds to steal about straining eyes and ears for rare events is often to destroy the very spirit of the morning throughout the rest of that idle saunter by field and covert the only things that really mattered to me were that the sun shone the birds sang the year was in the full red flush of its down going we all live for the moment at such a time bird and man and creeping thing at all other seasons much of our pleasure is derived from the thought that good as things are there are better to come but now our joy pivots on forgetfulness of the bleak and barren morrow i wandered on through sun and shadow from one leafy covert to another taking my fill of music and light and warm shelter as though each step were the last in plenty and the next would bring me out on the desert of wintry winds and loveless gloom and cold to spend an hour in winterslow and never once think of Hazlitt or the lambs must seem little short of a crime to the literary reader but that is what happened to me and will probably happen again if ever i retrace that day's tortuous route the truth is that winterslow puts the wayfarer under an immediate and all-sufficing spell of its own there is a present-day enchantment in the place that annihilates all thought of times foregone the living people there are so engrossingly attractive that it never occurs to you to ponder over the dead ones famous or obscure it is a vortex of rural peace and quiet or rather a dimple in the pool just serving to mark the vital difference between progress and stagnation i came into the beautiful old-world settlement of winterslow well prepared as the overture prepares one for grand opera in a field not far from the village some sheep were folded and stopping to listen to the bells i was immediately struck by the pureness of their tone the ordinary sheep-bell is a kind of inverted brazen can but the bells of this fold were real bells both in shape and quality THE BELLS ON A FARM USUALLY BELONG TO THE SHEPHERD, AND ARE HANDED DOWN FROM FATHER TO SON IN THE COMMON CALLING. SOME SETS ARE OF GREAT AGE, AS I JUDGE THESE TO BE. BUT THERE WAS NO SHEPHERD TO inquire OF. THE FOLD WAS IN CHARGE OF A SHAGGY GREY DOG, WHO, THOUGH HE LOOKED AS IF HE WERE FULL OF INFORMATION, FAILED TO ENLIGHTEN ME mainly because i could not understand his thunderous speech however i made out that he warned me to come no nearer so i contented myself with leaning over the gate and listening to the wayward melody of the fold silvery and slow in the noontide sun the sound crept over me and i thought i had never heard a sweeter strain the notes ran through a full octave up and down now in clanging peals of a score together and now in single tones like bells moved at random by the inconstant breeze and there was a sort of rhythm through it all almost a meaning there were sudden clear harmonies and pell-mell discords following them once and for a long time it seemed all the bells stopped together while one of the deepest tolled as regularly as if the sexton himself were at his rope and then all the bells came swinging in together the rich quiet notes overreaching one another like flood-tide ripples on a sandy shore i turned at last and went on to the village but the soft pealing stayed in my ears in fancy it returned to me all through the day. And again, in fancy, I heard it far off, as silvery and slow as ever, when I woke in the night, walled up in the queerest, cosiest nesting-place that ever poor vagrant chanced upon. But of that, in its place. My first impression of Winterslow was as of a wide-spreading flower-garden dotted over with gigantic brown toadstools and here and there a beehive fancifully shaped like a house but on a nearer view the toy houses became veritable human dwellings and the toadstools real cottages hiding under their thatch yet my main conception of the place as a garden remained to the end in the hour i spent there i saw more and finer flowers than i looked upon at any other spot in the five counties every cottage stood in its patch of rich-hued autumn blossom the sprawling scarlet of virginia creeper decked the walls ruddy apples shone aloft in the trees the favourite pampas grass lit many a nook with its cool silver roses met the eye at every turn in make-believe of june before i had been there five minutes i set winter slow down as a place where it never snowed nor gloomed nor blew cold i give it eternal sunshine unquestioningly just as surely as i know that the sky above it is always of the same cloudless blue that was a busy hour when i was tired of looking over garden gates at the lavish treasure beyond i had the smithy to inquire into to note the changing clang of the iron as it cooled under the hammer and learn the true voice of temper watch the sparks flying out of the shadow through the slant of sunshine into shadow again hearken to the wheezy bellows the growl of the fire the competition of luxurious sparrows on the roof then there was a little red house half private dwelling half workshop the shop was carpeted in shavings full of a green light from ivy cumbered window panes and pervaded by a serious old man who quietly hammered at a bench he was not in the least perturbed when i came and silently looked in upon him like a village urchin i said after a while by way of greeting that it was good work this the contriving and fashioning in wood and he replied that it was indeed so provided that a man could get enough of it whereby to live Then we went partnership in a full five minutes of congenial silence, broken only by the tap of his hammer as he fed it with slender, shining brass brads. It was a workbox, or some such woman's trifle, that he was engaged upon. I watched it grow together under his deft fingers, helping him with mute commendation until he had got it into final shape and then he conveyed to me that he was glad of my assistance by reaching me down a rose from a glass on the window-sill i never like to have them out of mind said he polishing busily i looked in at cottage doors with discreet and private eye in passing and browsed a while on the labels in the window of the village shop there were few men about these being at their labour in the fields, but the women abounded, all the older ones wearing the print sunbonnet, last vestige of the national peasant costume. I have often wondered at the strange coincidence, yet it is nevertheless a fact that I never come into a village, but I hit upon the one precious half-hour of the day, when the women lay by work for a chat at the cottage door or flying interchange of news across the street so it again happened in winterslow they were all merrily at it as i sauntered through leaning out of window or door or gathered in little companies by the garden gates and while i stood listening to the murmur of voices soft or shrill the school door burst open like a dam and a rush of pinafores Pink and white and blue, all but swept me off my feet. I turned eastward from Winterslow at last, with my rose nodding from my buttonhole, and in my ears a medley of music, bells and hammer, the chippering of sparrows and children, the sugared indolence of Wiltshire country speech. That noon I lunched by the wayside on apples and plum heavies and heroic meal with a robin perched on my boot-toe whence he descended at intervals to recover errant crumbs so that you keep still or make but the most deliberate movement the robin whose private hedgerow quarters you may be sharing will always wait upon you thus the legend of ill-luck to the molester of the robin or his nest is all but universal in the country he bears a charmed life and well he knows it he allows no liberties but permits himself many and a favourite perch of his is an outstretched human foot especially when the east wind chills the ground so there we sat my little scarlet waistcoated ballet and i for a full half hour until it became necessary to consult the map when at the unavoidable rustle and flourish of the sheet of paper he flew off scared and offended and i saw him no more i made the astonishing discovery as before it had happened to me that i was nearly out of the county though believing myself still in the heart of it in a mile or two at most i was to leave wiltshire behind and strike into hampshire and for the moment this came as much a grievance as a surprise round about winterslow you will find no fairer country in all southern england there is nothing wild about it and little that is imposing unless these qualities are taken piecemeal In the magnificence of its trees but it will charm the eye and comfort the mind at every turn there is a visible correspondence a sure fellowship between humanity and nature there for once the two seem to labor together for the common good and the sun to shine on something like the old edenic unity but i was to feel that more and more as the afternoon drew on to its golden closing and feel it in a remarkable way end of chapter fifteen